Well, as I said at the start of this service, we are indeed in the book of Romans, looking at what this book has to teach us about the good news, the gospel that we believe in, who it's for, and ultimately how it shapes our lives. And over the past several weeks, especially as we've been in these last few chapters of Romans, we've really been looking at what does it mean to live a gospel-saturated life? How does what we believe shape who we are and what we do? And so as we look at Romans chapter 14, we're going to kind of be continuing with that theme. But I think it's only right that before we open God's word, we allow him to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive it. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Let's pray together. Lord God, we give you thanks for this time in which you have gathered us together as a family of faith. A family to meet together, but also to meet with you. That we might learn about you, know of your love, but also ultimately also understand the purposes that you have for our lives. And so, Lord, as we again come before your word, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive it. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, when I was a young man, uh, I came to faith a little bit later than um, many of my peers. I didn't really uh, become a Christian until I was 18. Um, there had been a season in which we hadn't gone to church, in which that just wasn't a priority for us as a family. And even when my parents did start taking me back to church, it really didn't matter a whole lot to me. But through a variety of circumstances, I started to explore again. And I, I kind of came back to faith and uh, started walking with Jesus. And um, shortly after that, I went off to college. And so I at entering in, into college, I had to go about a church search. I had to decide, where am I going to worship on a weekend? And so I started kind of looking around and visiting different churches. And I remember one church in particular uh, that I went into on a Sunday morning. And after the worship service, a very nicely dressed uh, gentleman uh, came up there. And, uh, and he wanted to, uh, and he kind of stopped me as I was leaving. And he stopped me in order to read me the riot act specifically about what I was wearing. You see, I was wearing khakis and a polo shirt. And apparently that wasn't nice enough for Sunday mornings in this gentleman's opinion because he believed that the only way to truly honor God and to show respect for God is to wear a full suit and tie. And I did not have the proper attire. And so he proceeded to lecture me on this and then he said, I expect to see you back here next Sunday with nothing less than a sport coat and a tie. Well, do you want to know where I was next Sunday? I was at a different church. I did not go back to that church. Because the welcome that I had received in that church was not the welcome that I had read about in Scripture. The welcome that I had received in that church was not reflective of the hospitality that I believed Jesus showed to every single person that he encountered. And the reason I bring that up is because oftentimes within the church, what we end up doing is we end up dividing the church and erecting barriers between God and people simply on the basis of our own personal opinions. We divide the church and erect barriers between God and people simply on the basis of our own personal opinions. And we're talking about that because here in Romans chapter 14, Paul is talking about how the gospel-saturated life should actually shape how we behave when we're gathered here. When we get together as the family of faith. 
Or when we gather in our small groups to study God's word, he's saying that we need to attend to this passage to really think carefully about it because it impacts and it shapes what we do and how we behave when we are gathered together as God's family. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open up with me to Romans chapter 14. And if you are um, a guest with us or you don't have a Bible of your own, we invite you to go ahead and use the Pew Bible, which is uh, in front of you or under your uh, pew. Uh, We are on page 948. And the reason we want you to, to be there with us is so that we can really study this together, so that we can look at it as a whole community. And furthermore, if you don't have your own Bible, why don't you take the Pew Bible? Let that be our gift to you. We want you to have it so that you can study it, so that you can underline things, write your own notes in the margins and things like that. But we are in Romans chapter 14. And in Romans chapter 14, Paul begins with these words. He says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Do not quarrel over opinions. See, Paul opens Romans 14 warning us that our opinions are very, very dangerous things. That opinions, while we are entitled to them, can become sources of division between people. And he says, my desire is that you would welcome the one who is weak in faith and not quarrel over personal opinions. Now, let's be very, very clear about what Paul is talking about and what he's not talking about. Because I think that oftentimes we get this idea of opinions kind of messed up in our culture today. We tend to think that uh, central matters of theology and doctrine are simply a matter of opinion. And I say, well, that's your interpretation of the text and this is my interpretation of the text. But what Paul has been saying throughout the book of Romans up to this point is, no, there are issues of theology and doctrine that are so clear and so central, it's not a matter of opinion. This is what God has revealed to us about who he is and who we are and what it means to walk in faith with him. So he's not talking about disagreements over doctrine. He's saying there's certain things about our theology which God has revealed to us and said these are true. Not a matter of opinion. Likewise, he's not talking about morality. We tend to get into kind of thinking that morality and how we behave is a matter of opinion. But again, throughout Romans, Paul has been addressing issues of morality. And he says, look, if you, if you are a human being, God has certain things that he says are right and certain things that he says are wrong. Things that are good for you and things that are dangerous and harmful. And so he's not here talking about either theology or morality. What he is truly talking about is he's talking about everything else that matters in terms of personal preferences. Personal preferences. Okay, that's really what he's talking about here. And the question is, okay, so personal preferences in regard to what? And to get our answer, we have to first and foremost remember a little bit about the community that Paul is writing this letter to. See, we said all the way back in week one of our series that the church in Rome was initially founded by Jewish people who believed that Jesus Christ was indeed the Messiah. That's who founded the church in Rome, but the the emperor um, uh, of Rome at the time ended up actually expelling all the Jews from Rome. And the reason why he expelled them from Rome is because there were the Jews who believed Jesus was the Messiah and those who didn't. And they were fighting and it was causing conflict in his city and so he just expelled all the Jewish people. Those who believed in Jesus and those who didn't. And while they were gone, some Gentile Christians kind of took over the church and the church continued to grow. And continued to expand. And then when that emperor died, the Jews were allowed to return. And so now these like Jewish believers in Jesus returned to their church, but their church had changed. 
Their church had changed and now there was, they were trying to navigate these really sticky waters of what does it actually mean to be a cross-cultural church? What does it mean to be a church where some of us come from a Jewish background and some of us come from a pagan background? How do we relate to each other? What does it mean to hold certain things in common and how does that impact our worship life? And it's within that context that some debates over opinions have emerged. That some conflicts over personal preferences have kind of bubbled up to the surface. And specifically, those conflicts are found in uh, verses 2 and 3 and 5 and 6. Verse 2, he says, One person believes he may eat anything, while the, pers- uh, the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. And then verses 5 to 6, he says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. You see, what they're debating about, what they're arguing over, is matters of food and holidays. Sounds pretty familiar in uh, most families, right? This is what we tend to fight about, food and holidays. That's what we have disagreements about. But why are they fighting about these things? Well, the reason they're fighting about these things is because these weren't just like secondary issues for some of them. These were very near and dear to many of their hearts, especially those who came from a Jewish background. You see, those Christians who came from a Jewish background had been raised their entire lives, believing first and foremost that they had to keep kosher. That what they ate was a sign of dedicating their bodies to God. It was a sign of respect. Furthermore, they had been raised their entire lives to believe that you have to cease from all your work on the Sabbath and to celebrate the Sabbath as a day of prayer and of song and studying God's word. And for them, that Sabbath day was Saturday because that's what the Sabbath was in the Old Testament. But then you have these, these, pagan, uh, these formerly pagan people who are now Christians, people who come from this polytheistic background, and they don't have that same baggage. And so for them, they're kind of starting to worship on Sunday. And the reason they're worshiping on Sunday is that was the day Jesus rose again from the dead. And so they kind of moved their Sabbath and started to worship there. And they didn't have the same dietary restrictions. And others of them are bringing some of their own baggage. Maybe they used to be really devout pagans. Who believed that when they worshiped, that when they, when they sacrificed food at an altar, that now it was like they were eating with their God. And now that they've become Christians, they're like, well, what if this food that I'm buying from the marketplace has been sacrificed before an idol? Does that now betray my, my young faith? And so some of them have stopped eating meat altogether. And they're just being vegetarians. You have this incredibly diverse group of people who are still bringing some of their background and some of their baggage from their past into the body of faith. And they're starting to fight and debate over this. And some of them are saying, well, you just don't understand how we've been set free in Christ and we no longer have to observe those Old Testament laws. And others are saying, well, those matter to me and they're a sign of my obedience to God and you obviously don't care about God as much because if you did, you would observe the same kinds of things and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And speaking into this community, Paul says, that is not the way it's supposed to be within the family of God. That we are supposed to have a very, very different approach when we come into our times together. Because your fighting and your bickering is ultimately not only damaging you as a family, but it's creating barriers to those on the outside who are watching you. 
And I can't tell you how many times I've seen people walk away from the church entirely because there was fighting within the church. And Paul is saying Christians are called to have a different approach when they gather together as a family. And, and, and it's important to recognize that although we all bring our different kinds of baggage with us, we need to endeavor to understand the heart of God. Because this is no small issue. One of my favorite stories is in the book of Acts. It's Acts chapter 10 when uh, the apostle Peter is given this vision. He's given a vision of this sheet that comes down from heaven and it's filled with all kinds of animals, animals that are considered unclean for Jewish people to eat. And he hears the voice of God saying, hey, Peter, take these animals, uh, kill them and eat them. And he's like, no way. I've been an observant Jew my entire life. I'm not going to eat anything that's unclean. I'm not going to do that. That's something that pagans and Gentiles do. We don't, we don't have those meals. Three times this sheet comes down, God says, eat. And he's like, no. And then when the vision is over, there's a knock on the door. Well, it's a, bunch, it's a couple of pagans, and they've come looking for Peter, and they say, now, Peter, we'd like you to come with us because our master, Cornelius, is a Roman centurion who's received a vision from God about this man called Jesus. And we'd like you to come to his home and have a meal with him and explain this to him. <laughs> Peter is about to walk into a cross-cultural situation, and it took a revelation from God to help him get over his own personal baggage and biases. See, this is a very, very important issue, so how do we deal with it? Well, Paul says the way you deal with it, first and foremost, is by extending hospitality. Extending hospitality. He says, for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but don't quarrel over opinions. He says, welcome him. And this word for welcome is a word that, that means radical hospitality. It means to extend a welcome, to receive into one's home or circle of acquaintances. This isn't simply just to accept them and say a nice hi and then sit down and never talk to them. No, he's saying what you should do is you should play the host. That when you gather together as the family of God, you all are hosts. And we know how a host, a really good host, hosts people, right? That before you even come over, they're on the phone with you and they're asking, hey, what do you guys like to eat? Like, do you like Italian food, Mexican food, Indian food? Do you just want us to like do barbecue? Like, what do you want? We, we want to make some food that you're going to enjoy. Likewise, they might even go a step further and say, do you have any dietary restrictions? If you do, like, we're going to work with you. We want you to be able to come to our home and, and have a meal with us. And then when you get there, you are like the guest of honor, right? You get the head of the table. You get to go first through the line. They just like pull out all the stops. They roll out the red carpet for you. That's what good hosts do. Good host is willing to suspend all their normal table rules for the sake of making you feel like you are at home. For the sake of welcoming you in and saying, we desire you to be here. They're willing to put their own preferences on hold for the sake of setting a place at the table. That's what good hosts do. And what Paul is saying here is he's saying, that's exactly how I want you guys to behave. That whenever you gather together as the family of God, every single one of you walks into that place and says, I am a host here. And I'm going to play the host for every other person that I meet this morning. Because Paul says when you do, you actually build the other person up. You actually build the other person up. He says we should care so much about people taking their next step in their walk with Jesus that we are willing to put our personal preferences on hold for the sake of not creating a stumbling block. 
He actually says that several times in verses 13 to 16. He says, let's not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but I know it's unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ has died. Do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. He's saying put your personal preferences on hold for the sake of helping that person continue to grow in faith. I mean, how, how would that have shaped my interactions with that man that Sunday morning? New young person just coming to faith wants to be a part of the church. You see, it's putting the priority on people's growth in faith over and against my own personal preferences. He says, this is what mature Christians do. This is what strong Christians do. Strong Christians may say, yeah, I have a preference in certain things, but you know what? I'm willing to be flexible in those preferences for the sake of meeting other people where they're at. For the sake of helping them grow in their walk with Jesus. For the sake of helping them take their next step. That's what we're called to do. And this is an important reminder for us this morning because of the fact that Christians still fight over personal opinions and personal preferences. And I would argue it damages the church and it damages our witness. We still fight over goofy stuff like contemporary worship versus traditional worship or common cup versus individual cup or hymnals versus screens or suits versus plaid or whether children should be welcome or everybody needs to be quiet. We take these personal opinions and we elevate them to the level of ultimate things and we beat the snot out of each other over things that really don't matter. Right? Close, some of the closest family friends that we had in Lombard used to be members of our church. And suddenly a, a conflict emerged and it was over small stuff. It was over personal opinions. And they were so wounded by how nasty that fight got, they not only left our church, they never went back to church, period. You see, us fighting over stuff like this destroys what God has built. That's what Paul is saying. He's like, don't you destroy the one for whom Christ has died. Because when you do, you are actually passing judgment on each other. And that is a role that is only reserved for God. Over and over again, he says, don't pass judgment on each other over these opinions. Because essentially what ends up happening is we take these personal opinions, we elevate them to the level of theology, and then we exclude and judge people on the basis of personal preference. We condemn them. That's the Greek word that he's using here for judgment. We condemn them over something that doesn't matter. We despise their faith and look down on them because I personally like one kind of worship over another. And Paul is saying, you have no grounds to do that. Remember your job, is what he's telling the church here. Remember your job. Your job is to extend radical hospitality to one another. And imagine how that would change the church. Not just here at Trinity, but the church around the world. If every single Sunday, when we gathered together as God's people, we all walked in the doors and said, you know what, this is my house, and I'm going to play host for everybody else that I meet today. If we went out of our way to extend and roll out the red carpet for every single person with whom we crossed paths that morning, how would that change our community? 
I can tell you how it would change our community. I think we'd have a lot more people offering to set out donuts and coffee on a Sunday morning between services. I think we'd be getting in that cafe and saying, hey, how can I help? Do you need me to clean something? Why don't you sit down? I'll get you a plate. What, do you, what kinds of donuts do you like? And we would, we'd have people lining up to be greeters at our front door, to stand at our connect desk, to welcome people into the sanctuary, people just signing up to be a part of our hospitality team. But beyond that, even if you're not serving in any of those formal roles, I think it would change our community because as people walk into this place, we would be moving over and saying, hey, sit next to me. I'd love to get to know you. What's your name? What brought you to church today? Putting our preferences and our personal comfort on hold for the sake of playing host to the other. I think that that would actually not only change the church, that would change the world. I think Christians should be the best people at hospitality. And it would reshape the world because people would say, when I walk into church, that is the place where I feel the most welcome. Yes, I'm going to be encouraged to grow in faith. Yes, I'm going to be challenged to, to live a life following Jesus. Yes, I'm going to be called to self-sacrifice. But through it all, I also know that I'm welcome and that I'm loved. And I think that that would change the world. See, that's what we're called to do in this text. So what does that look like? How do we keep our opinions and our personal preferences from, from overshadowing everything else? Well, Paul gives us a couple of tips in this chapter. And I just want to run through them briefly. The first thing that he says is he says, we are to welcome others the way God has welcomed us. Verse 3, let no one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let no one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. See, what what Paul is saying here is he's saying God is the one who has shown us the ultimate hospitality. That God was willing to lay his own comfort aside, to leave heaven and come down into our world to become one of us. That is the ultimate kind of hospitality. That he doesn't wait for us to clean up our act and ascend a mountain and find him. No, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's what Paul wrote earlier on in Romans. I actually love what he says elsewhere in Philippians chapter 2. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, the gospel, the good news, is about the ultimate form of hospitality. That God was willing to become human, to die in our place, and to rise again to welcome us into his family for all time. He says, that's the way God has welcomed you. He ushered you into the family and showed you hospitality. He gave you forgiveness and new life. So extend that same hospitality to others Second thing that Paul calls us to do is he calls us to remember our identity as brothers and sisters in faith. In fact, several times throughout this passage, he, he, he talks about us being brothers. 
Chapter 10, he says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Uh, Verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Uh, Verse 13, therefore let's not pass judgment on another any longer, but decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Verse 15, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. Over and over again, he says, brother, 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 brother. Why? He says, because when you realize that God has put you together and made you a family, it changes your entire posture and outlook toward the other people who are gathered around you. You realize that, yeah, while we may have a disagreements, we're ultimately a family. And good families work stuff out together. We talk honestly We share our opinions, but at the end of the day, we get around that table together. We embrace one another and show each other that kind of familial love. It says, remember, you are brothers and sisters in Christ. Third and finally, he says, keep the mission central. Keep the mission central. Verses 17 to 19 are probably my favorite verses in this chapter. He says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. He says, keep the mission central the building up of the church, the extension of that good news to all people that righteousness is a gift from God, not something you have to earn, and that because of Jesus, you can have peace and joy with God for all time. He says, when you put that front and center, everything else pales by comparison. Arguing over the color of the carpet or whether we should have pews or chairs just seems dumb. In the grand scheme of saying, our desire is to meet everybody where they're at so that as many people as possible can know the love of Jesus Christ. This is part of the reason we as a church have four sites and not a single one of them looks like the other other three. It's because we walk into a community and we say, how can we meet this community here? How can we remove barriers and play the host and welcome people in so that they would know the love of Jesus Christ? It's for a reason we don't engage in these debates about contemporary versus uh, uh, traditional worship. Because we say, hey, look, as long as it's scripture-based, it's all good for the purpose of letting people know and meet God. It's this passion for keeping the mission central and saying the most important thing is that when people encounter us as a family, they would know that they're welcome here, that God loves them, That God desires to set them free, to forgive them, and give them a life of salvation which begins right here, right now. To join us in walking with Jesus in faith. That's our calling. That's what he says a gospel-saturated life looks like within this family. It's a kind of life in which we extend godly hospitality, radical hospitality to others. In which we say, you know what, my personal preferences, while they're my preferences, I'm willing to put on hold for the sake of reaching others. And it's all reflective of the fact that that's exactly how God treats each and every one of us. And so it's with that in mind, responding to the hospitality of God, that I want to invite you now to stand with me as we sing praises to him using the words of this hymn.